0: If you have your Bible with you tonight, I'd ask that you turn to Genesis uh, chapter uh, 12. We'll be looking at verses uh, 10 to 20. It'll also be on the screen, but it's helpful for you if you've got your Bible uh, to look at and refer to uh, during the course of our uh, study this evening. Genesis 12. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we thank you for it. And we thank you, Lord, for how you give your word to us to reassure us, to comfort us, to challenge and convict us. And to strengthen us in faith as we consider your gracious character and your faithfulness and commitment to your promises. And so, Lord, we pray that that is what you would do tonight through our weakness as preacher and as a congregation. So help us, Lord, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had it uh, where you were surprised to hear what someone... Sounds like Uh, You see someone and you form uh, Certain impressions about uh, What will come out of their mouth What that's going to sound like Uh, Maybe it's the guy who looks like he could uh, uh, Bench press a school bus uh, With the children still inside Right, he's had a beard since he's been 12 years old, he eats his cereal With testosterone sort of uh, just sprinkled On it, right And he opens his mouth And suddenly It's a little squeakier Uh, Than you were anticipating. Uh, There's a clash of expectations uh, and reality that can throw you off in a moment like that. Well, in one sense, that's the experience that we're meant to have as we come to our text this evening. We're likely to be thrown off just a little bit. Abram, a great father of the faith, speaks, but it's not what we're expecting. When Abram opens his mouth, it's not a a faith-filled, courageous roar, but we hear the squeaky whimper of a man beset by fear and doubt and unbelief. Why? Why do we have this unflattering picture of Abram, this father of the faith? Well, as Christians, we know that we're called to walk by faith, to live by faith, to stand uh, firm in faith. But we can be unclear about what that looks like. And there can be aspects of living as a believer that surprise us or even uh, shock us. As a pastor, I've walked alongside people who have been greatly disturbed by uh, doubts and by encountering uh, their own spiritual weakness and unbelief. Sometimes that disturbance is so great, it causes people to wonder, am I even a Christian at all? It seems that a true believer wouldn't struggle with unbelief as they do, that if they were truly Christian, they would be less quick to forget God and less prone to fall into the sins that they're struggling with. How can I be a Christian if walking by faith is so hard, they wonder. If that's been you, or if that is you even tonight, God allows Abram to squeak and stumble in this passage to help you and to help you help others. Because we see two things happening uh, in these verses. First, in the faithlessness of Abram, we get a realistic picture of the Christian life, but also of our own hearts. And this should keep us from despair, but it also will keep us from complacency. And second, in the faithfulness of God, we see a wonderful picture of divine grace to weak sinners. And by this, God intends to strengthen us in faith by showing us His commitment to His promises. So if you're taking notes this evening, our outline's simple. First, we're going to consider a fearful father, then a threatened promise, and then a gracious God. A fearful father, a threatened promise, and a gracious God. So let's dive into the text together. Well, our passage is the second installment in Genesis' account of the life of Abram. Uh, In the first installment, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, we were introduced to Abram. And we're told there how God called Abram, this idolater from Ur, uh, and he extended promises to bless Abram and to bless the nations of the world through Abram. In Abram, we said, God was establishing a river of grace that would flow down through human history and out to the world. Now, God reveals his purposes. He does that in the first half of Genesis by speaking audibly to Abram in verse 1. And later he appears to Abram uh, visibly in verse 7. And in these two encounters, we saw that God had promised Abram two things. He had promised him offspring and a land. And while there was uh, seemingly immense obstacles in the way, Abram believes God and he trusts God to do as he says. So God says, go, and Abram goes. God says, I'm going to give this land to you. And Abram builds an altar and he worships there. Now, if I said to you tonight that you could trade the quality of your faith with Abram's, I suspect that most of us would take that deal. I know I would, right? We, we tend to think of Abram as uh, an example of faith we aspire to. And that's for good reason. Abram is treated in the Bible as one of the examples of faith. If there was a a Mount Rushmore of Old Testament saints, Abram's face would unquestionably be on that mountain. In Hebrews 11, sometimes called uh, the Hall of Faith, no one gets as much ink as Abram does. In James 2, Abram is called a friend of God. Romans, uh, uh, Abram is, is called the father of those who believe with that sort of background and conception of of Abram uh, 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 that we've got, our text tonight is going to surprise us. A famine has caused Abram and his family to travel from Canaan to Egypt. Uh, Canaan was a land that was particularly susceptible to drought and famine because it relied on the seasonal rains uh, to grow things. And so if the rains didn't come as expected, uh, then famine came. And Abram was in sort of a tough spot because he was a migrant. Uh, he had, at God's command, come to the land of Canaan. He was living among the fortified cities, uh, but he was not a, a sort of the natural-born resident of these areas. And when time got, times got tough, it was unlikely that Abram was going to find uh, help from his neighbors. And in search of food, Abram travels down to Egypt where the Nile River uh, would provide him uh, some food where they didn't quite feel the effects of drought in the same way. And as Abram's caravan travels down to Egypt, suddenly Abram senses he's got a problem. Evidently, it's not a problem that had occurred to Abram uh, before, but it occurs to him now, and he thinks, "Uh uh-oh, my wife is beautiful. It's an interesting problem to have. Though Sarai is 65 years old at this point, both Abram and the princes of Egypt praise Sarai as being a a woman of great physical beauty. Now, this is sort of an aside, but I I find it interesting. Commentators are sort of puzzled over the the secret of uh, Sarai's beauty by uh, some have tried to explain it by saying, well, maybe there's different cultural expectations uh, of beauty uh, going on here. Uh, Others have said maybe God supernaturally uh, was uh, uh, causing the the patriarchs, Abram, Sarai, uh, to age differently than we do. John Calvin, who's normally a a faithful interpreter, suggested Sarai's beauty uh, may have been strangely preserved because she had not yet been able to have children. Seems a bit of a stretch. (laughs) We don't know how Sarai preserved her beauty. We just know that she was beautiful. And while having a gorgeous wife wouldn't normally seem like a a problem, it's a problem in Abram's mind because he fears that the Egyptians are going to see that he's got this beautiful wife and they're going to give him a pair of cement boots and drop him in the Nile just so they could get to Sarai. And so the first words that we have recorded in sacred scripture that come out of the mouth of Abram, this father of the faith, are words of fear and self-concern and doubt. Verse 11 and 12. We know, I know, Abram says, that you're a woman, a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. This is not what we'd expect. So fear grips Abram's heart and how he responds to that fear is significant. I don't think Abram's fear in and of itself was sinful, but how he responds leads him to sin. He says in verse 13, say you're my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. So Abram conspires with Sarai to misrepresent their relationship. To put it bluntly, Abram and Sarai agree to lie. And it wasn't an outright lie. Uh, Genesis 20 tells us that Sarah was Abram's uh, half-sister, not something we're going to get into tonight. But they shared a father, not a mother. And so what what Abram's saying to Sarah isn't entirely made up. Yet Abram is purposely misrepresenting the truth here. And this is sin. Our Westminster larger catechism uh, makes the point in its explanation of the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment says we shouldn't bear a false testimony, and according to the larger catechism, when God forbids false testimony, this includes, and I quote, speaking in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. Now, what does that mean? Well, one commentator explains it this way. He says, intentionally to use expressions that can be understood in two different ways in order to deceive some other person is just as wicked as telling an outright lie. The real essential nature of a lie is the intention to deceive some person. Even though what we say may be itself true, if our intention is to deceive others, we are really liars in God's sight. So let's get practical here. Uh, Boys and girls, uh, maybe you've had it where you've done something uh, that's hurt a sibling. Uh, Maybe, just maybe, you've uh, pushed them off the couch. And of course, they start to cry and your parents come rushing in and they say, what happened? And you say, he fell off the couch and he got hurt. Now, your brother did fall off the couch, uh, but what you know and what you're not saying is that he fell off the couch because you assisted him, right? And when we do this, we are lying and sinning against God. Well, in a similar way, Abram said something true, but it wasn't uh, the full truth when he was called to give it. He spoke in order to deceive, and to do this in God's judgment is sin. So Abram is in a hard situation. He's afraid. Uh, He reacts to his fear by engaging in sinful deception. But what I want us to note particularly tonight is what underlies the, the circumstance, which underlies uh, the, the feeling, uh, which underlies uh, Abram's response. I want us to see Abram's functional unbelief. Now, notice that as Abram encounters a challenging circumstances and he feels these strong feelings within him, God is nowhere in view for Abram. There's no mention of Abram remembering God or praying to God as he did earlier, Now, there's no recollection of the promises of God uh, to bless Abram or his purposes. God doesn't show up at all in verses 10 to 16. And that's a pretty glaring omission. Now, what what we have instead is this father of the faith, this great patriarch, uh, and he's gripped by fear and he forgets that God is in the picture at all. And as a result, Abram takes matters into his own hands. He he tries to protect himself uh, by lying, by covering up uh, the truth. And in this act of cowardice, he, uh, he puts forth his wife in order to protect his own skin. So notice, when Abram has cropped God out of the picture, it led to a whole cluster of sins. Now, there's two things that I want us to see from Abram's shocking example here. First, this snapshot of Abram gives us a realistic picture of the Christian life. Now, being a Christian doesn't mean that we are exempt from moments of doubt or unbelief uh, and even great sin. Abram's just one example among several in Scripture. In, in believing Abram, we see that faith is often mixed with unbelief, even in the greatest of saints. I think it's important for us to be realistic about what the life of faith looks like, this side of Christ's return. If you're a Christian, God has pulled you out of your dead unbelief. And, and now you're living uh, in this period, though, where you're not yet fully freed from sin. Uh, uh, you've been rescued from sin's power, but not, uh, uh, it still plagues us. Right? It doesn't dominate us, but it deceives us. Right? We're not ruled by sin, but we're still beset by sin. And what this means is that true Christians, true Christians, at times will be beset with unbelief and the sins that accompany it. I think, unfortunately, sometimes Christians can have the impression that because our faith falters, that it's not true faith. And if we don't possess True faith, then perhaps maybe we're not truly converted, and if not truly converted, then we're not truly saved, and if we're not truly saved, we're not a child of God. I wonder, dear Christian, is that how you think? Well, it's true that apart from true faith, no one will be saved. It's not true that a faltering faith is no faith at all. So, brother and sister, especially if you're someone who is struggling with periods of doubt, and unbelief. I want you to consider the example of Abram. Now, while I'm not commending Abram's unbelief, I want you to realize that even great Christians here and now are prone to fickleness. So thank you. Uh, come home from the missions trip or uh, the Christian conference. Uh, there you've been uh, challenged. You've been encouraged. Uh, you are filled with zeal and a great confidence uh, toward God. You're committed to walking in obedience and serving God and turning from your sin. But then only a week later, you fall back into that same sin pattern. And you wonder, how can this be? Right? What is wrong with me? Have you been there? Or maybe it's the person who's moved to tears on Sunday because they hear the gospel being preached and they believe deeply what Christ has done for them. But then Monday, that uh, that same person, that heart is gripped by fear and a need to control others because God is not a functioning presence in their relationships. Well, our text helps, uh, helps believers to be realistic that our faith is often mixed with unbelief yet it won't support complacency about that unbelief. Yes, this may be our experience, but it's also an experience that we're to guard against. And that's the second point I want to make under this heading. We want to be on guard against unbelief, knowing it often challenges God's people. Our passage isn't ambivalent about Abram's unbelief. It doesn't shrug its shoulders and say, well, that's just the way it is uh, sometimes. Abram's functional unbelief and the sinful responses that accompany it are even eventually scolded by the pagan pharaoh. And so we should ask ourselves, where is their functional unbelief at work in my life? Abram's unbelief wasn't manifested in him denying God's existence or uh, having deeply grappling with uh, the problem of evil, though Christians can do that as well. Abram's unbelief is showed in his cropping God out of his life. He didn't engage with his circumstances, with God in the picture. Now, for us, this may mean that we look, for example, at a strained relationship, but we don't stop to think, what would be different about this relationship if I saw God as the one who is ruling and reigning over all things and who's present here in this relationship? Being on guard against unbelief uh, might mean asking ourselves something like, how would I go into this meeting at work differently if I was convinced from my head to my toes, that the all-present, everlasting God has gone before me into that meeting. Another way that we can test uh, our functional unbelief is just to ask the question, uh, am I praying about this area of my life? And if not, why not? Our prayers tend to show where we think we we need to invite God's help in our life. And our lack of prayers tend to show where we don't think we need God. So just think for a second. God spoke audibly to Abram. He appears visibly to Abram. He gives promises directly to Abram. So Abram's heart could be infected with unbelief. We got to ask ourselves, how much more vigilant must we be? Well, as a matter of, as serious a matter as Abram's functional unbelief is, it's made all the more serious by who Abram is and uh, what he had received. Abram uh, is a special figure. He's, he's called to play a special part in God's plan of redemption. Abram was a beachhead of God's covenant of grace. God was going to bless the families of the world through Abram. Right? The world's under this curse of sin, and Abram is part of the solution. Now, as we said earlier, God had made two special promises to Abram. He promised Abram offspring, and he promised Abram land. And I want you to notice that no sooner are these promises made then with big red ink there are question marks drawn over them in our text. So God promised Abram a land, specifically God promised uh, Abram's offspring, uh, the land of of Canaan, and Abram's settling there, uh, but then famine strikes and Abram uh, leaves Canaan uh, for Egypt, he's removed from the land. And we're supposed to ask ourselves, what's going to happen to this land promise? But God also promised Abram children, and Abram's experience in Egypt causes a warning light to go off on this promise as well, because Abram schemes that he can pass Sarai off as his sister. Maybe he was thinking, uh, you know, if anyone's interested in her, I could just sort of negotiate a bride price. That was kind of customary in that time. I could stall. I could sort of figure things out, but things don't work out as Abram plans, right? There's no negotiating with Pharaoh, So when the members of of Pharaoh's household see Sarai, see she's beautiful, she's taken to Pharaoh's house. And not for tea and a chat, right? We need to be clear, but she's taken there to become one of Pharaoh's wives. And there's a number of problems with this. First, there's Abram's uh, cowardice and his reneging on his duties as a, a husband. There's the treatment of Sarai. There's Pharaoh's unwitting adultery, But at the heart of the matter is that Abram not only forgets God's promise of of offspring, he also seemingly endangers it. If Abram was going to have children, Sarah would seem to be a necessary part of that equation. But here she is now with Pharaoh. What happens if she has Pharaoh's uh, child? Or if she stays in Pharaoh's house indefinitely? Genesis 12 is not just a story about Abram and Sarah. It's a story about promises. It's about God's promises, promises which Abram forgot and promises which, from one perspective, seem threatened. So consider for a second how the Bible would be different if this story ended with Sarai living out her days in Pharaoh's palace and with Abram uh, living as a bachelor with his growing flocks and herds outside the palace gates. And with the promises of God growing old and expiring in Egypt along with childless Abram and Sarai, with God's covenant of grace drying up as quick as it started. No offspring, no redeemer, no salvation, no grace or blessing for the world. And if faltering Abram is left to his own unbelief, that's exactly what would happen. But Abram is not left to his unbelief. Abram's faithlessness is met by the faithfulness of his gracious God, and that's our third point, a gracious God. Now, there's two contrasts that I want to draw your attention to in verses 16 to 20. The first contrast is the contrast between Abram and uh, Pharaoh. So Abram is God's uh, chosen vessel for bringing blessing to the world. He's this man of faith, yet in our story, as we've seen, his unbelief is on full display. He's faithless, he's fickle, he's false, he's cowardly, he's dishonorable. Contrast this, though, with the conduct of Pharaoh. Though Pharaoh is, is duped by Abram and he's led into unintentional sin, the pagan Pharaoh's uh, conduct sparkles in contrast with Abram. When Abram's deceit is uncovered, Pharaoh is flabbergasted, he's befuddled, he's like, how can you do this? How could you possibly pass her off as your sister? And this interaction, this contrast, is just one way the story shines a light on Abram's weakness. Here's a pagan putting Abram to shame with conduct that's more righteous than his. Of course, it's not just Abram, of course. Sadly, there are many examples or occasions where the behavior of those outside the church far surpasses or puts to shame the behavior of those inside the church. Focus here is to look at this man to look at Abram in his weakness. The difference between believing Abram and pagan Pharaoh is not that Abram was a better man than Pharaoh. At least on this occasion we know that he wasn't. The difference is that Abram is a recipient of God's grace. This grace is displayed in our second contrast, a contrast between God and Abram. Abram was faithless. He had forgotten God's promises. As wonderful as those promises are, they seem to fade in the background for Abram as soon as trouble comes. God, however, has not forgotten his promises. He's committed to his promises despite Abram's sin and unbelief. The first hint of God's faithfulness is actually in verse 16. Uh, Pharaoh deals well with Abram because of Sarai. And there's actually some irony here because God works through Abram's faithlessness uh, to keep his promises to bless Abram. So back in verse 2, God had said to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And we see God adding to Abram's wealth as he causes Pharaoh to give Abram animals and servants. So That's just one way that God is is keeping his promise. Another way that God uh, makes his presence felt is in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife another thing that God had said earlier in our chapter in verse 3 is, whoever dishonors Abram, I'm going to curse. And here, despite this situation being of Abram's own doing, God is true to his promise. He afflicts Pharaoh and the royal household with terrible plagues. So God bursts onto the scene. He acts to secure the promises that Abram's faithlessness had seemingly imperiled. Because of the plagues, uh, Pharaoh releases Sarai to Abram. He sends Abram along with all of his possessions uh, uh, that he had gathered in Egypt, and he sends them away back to the promised land. And so now we've got the promises of offspring and the promises of land. They're back on the table. Now, Abram's unbelief was displayed in his forgetting God's promises. God's grace is displayed in his keeping his promises by delivering Abram Out of Egypt. Now, in fact, this is a a pattern that we find throughout the scriptures that points to God's grace. If you're familiar with uh, the Bible, you might notice that Abram's story sounds a lot like another Egyptian escape. Abram's experience uh, individually anticipates Israel's experience nationally in the Exodus. Uh, People go down to Egypt because of famine. There, the males are in danger. God sends terrible plagues to release his people. The people plunder or get rich off the Egyptians. And God brings his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. So really, what we're supposed to see here in Genesis, Abram's story is like a mini exodus. And the exodus is the defining redemptive act in the Old Testament. So Abram's exodus, like Israel's exodus, points us to a God who does not forget his promises, who doesn't forget his saving purposes, who doesn't forget his people. And this exodus patterns, or these exodus patterns, these deliverances, they are patterns that run through the very heart of the scriptures. For it's the pattern of grace that finds its fulfillment in the life and death of Jesus Christ. By his death and resurrection, Jesus takes his people out of a domain of of sin and death and he leads his people into the realm of God's salvation blessings and his eternal rest. And he's leading his people toward the new heavens and the new earth. And he does this as we're united to him by faith. It's not necessarily a perfect faith. It's not necessarily a spotless faith or a large faith, but it's a genuine faith that joins us to him. Trusting that God will do as He's promised in His Son. Joined to Him, we're delivered with Him. So three acts of deliverance. In each case, God's work of exodus, of bringing out, shows His commitment to His gracious promises. For with Abraham, with Israel, with us, God acts despite our weakness and unbelief because He is 100% committed to His gracious purposes. God's deliverance of faithless, forgetful Abram shows his faithfulness is greater than our weakness. And so I think that there's one more important thing for us to take away from this story. It's that as we see God's gracious character and as we see his faithfulness to his promises, we aren't just warned uh, about our propensity for unbelief. We're also strengthened against it. So our functional unbelief displays itself in forgetting God and forgetting what God has has promised. And one of the ways that we're strengthened against that type of unbelief is by having the reality of those promises pressed in against our lived experience, to have those promises anchored in reality. It's one thing, right, to have the promise, but that promise becomes more concrete. It becomes bigger when it's demonstrated in action. In uh, his book, A Resilient Life, Gor- G- uh, Gordon McDonald tells a story that might have echoes in your own experience. Maybe you've been on the giving end of this or the receiving end of this. Uh, but many years ago, uh, McDonald was a track star in high school. And uh, he and his friends made plans to meet up with uh, their girlfriends in Long Island, which was uh, some distance away from their track meet. And they were uh, permitted to go on the condition that they were back in their dorms uh, by midnight. And that required that they catch a 10.30 uh, train. If they broke curfew, they knew that they, were, uh, they risked not being able to graduate later that month. So the boys reported uh, the dates were great. Uh, their sense of timing, not so much. They missed the last train from Long Island. And in a panic, they thought, what are we going to do? It was uh, too long to walk, too expensive to take a taxi, Uh, it was their fault. Their foolishness had got themselves into this situation, despite their assurances that it wouldn't happen. And so with great reluctance, they uh, pick up the phone and they call their now sleeping coach, uh, Coach Goldberg. And without complaint, Coach Goldberg woke up and made the hour-long drive to pick up the boys. And in that late-night rescue, the boys came to see Coach, uh, Coach Goldberg's commitment to them in a bigger more tangible way. Goldberg's rescue showed that the relationship between the coach and the runners wasn't just talk, it was a relationship that had a substance to it. It was, in some sense, an act of grace that anchored in reality Coach Goldberg's commitment to those boys. He had expressed it before, but this gracious uh, rescue made that commitment more clear and harder to forget. And it's grace like that, only infinitely bigger and better, that's on display in Abram's story. And because of Jesus, on display in our story too. For flailing, forgetful, faithless sinners like us, Christ comes and He rescues us from our own foolishness, our own faithlessness, our own sin. And there we see His promises in action. There His commitment to us is not rooted merely in words, but in a shared experience of death and resurrection. There we see that his commitment to us is greater than our weakness. And so we combat our propensity to unbelief, not just by remembering the promises, but by remembering the reality of God's commitment to his promises and his commitment to his people in all of our weakness and frailty and sin. And we see this as we look to God's deliverance at the cross. Seen in his word, read, read, and preached, seen at the table where his body and blood are shown forth, and our faltering faith is strengthened, as we're reminded that it's true. If we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. For, Lord, we can, if we look closely, see ourselves in it. Lord, our own weakness of faith, our unbelief, our sin. And, Lord, we pray that you would work through this passage, Lord, not to leave us there, but to keep us on, uh, on guard, to be vigilant. But, Lord, more than that, to see your grace. We don't want to obsess over, Lord, our failings. We want to be mindful of them, but we want to look and have our gaze fixed upon your faithfulness, your commitment to do as you've said, your commitment to save sinners and be gracious to us. And Lord, in that, we pray that would be the reality that anchors our faith and causes us to grow in believing. This, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.